some a forger, somebody who's constantly seeing what's amazing wherever they are. And Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore our relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 27, Foraging and Teaching with Dina Falcone. Dina is a community herbalist, a permaculturist, an author, and educator. We speak with her about growing up on the mean streets of New York City and becoming serious about her health and about food as medicine at the tender age of 11, about studying with Pam Montgomery and with the eccentric herbalist William Le Saucier, about all the wonderful plants that you can forage and feast upon, about her book, Foraging and Feasting. We also speak about the importance of Weston Price and his contributions to nutrition and Dina's way of finding balance and living a healthy life. We'd also very much like to thank Loretta Mary, who is our newest VIP patron on Patreon. And we'd like to encourage any of you who would like to see this podcast succeed to join Loretta and our other patrons on patreon.com plantcunning. But also don't feel like you have to if you don't have the money for it. I've listened to many podcasts for free, and uh, this is one of the ways that I can give back. And you can always share this on your social media account or with your friends who you think would like this content. And uh, rate and review us on iTunes and on other mediums. You can also email us at plantcunning at gmail.com. With feedback, we've had some very lovely feedback, and we really appreciate all of those emails. I'd also just like to thank all of our listeners, so if you're listening to this, thank you. And I hope you enjoy this episode. AC and I sure enjoyed recording it. Okay, so today we have Dina Falcone on the Plant Cunning Podcast. Um, She's an author, educator, clinical herbalist, and passionate about wild foods, among many other things. So thank you so much, Dina, for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on Plant Cutting. Absolutely. So our our traditional first question is, how did you get on the plant path? So, I mean, you know, maybe I don't really know how, (laughs) but my answer is (laughs) um, it really started uh, consciously at the age of 11 years old. And I became a food focused, food as medicine focused person. So at that ripe old age of 11, you know, what's food? How does it heal us? How do we have sovereignty over our health based on, you know, what foods we consume? And that segued into being, you know, somebody who's into alternative medicine and using plants as medicine and and wild food. You know, so kind of that's the seed that was planted that that many years ago in the East Village of New York City in an urban wacky world of 1969 and 70s and so on. So, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. where it began. At 11 years old. Wow. It's an early start. Yeah, it was an early start. 
<laughs> that's great. Well, I found is that's a pretty common for a lot of people who are really into plants, like getting that biophilia involved at that a young age. Like, you know, I was always in the woods when I was a kid. And I think it's a really, really important part of, of a childhood, <laughs> you know, is, is to be, is to, to be with nature and to be with plants. I agree. It's, it's my circumstance. I wasn't actually surrounded by nature. I was surrounded by a pretty bizarre urban landscape in the East Village, Greenwich Village in that period of history in New York City. So I think I was craving that. Right. Um, yeah. I, and, but I was surrounded by a food culture and an alternative healing culture, an alternative radical culture in general, who's asking mm -hmm. questions. But I actually didn't get that sort of biophilia, you know, that early or at least I should say, once we landed in the city, in New York City, I mean, we did have access to Tompkins Square Park, but it basically beca became a super sort of dark void that you didn't enter unless you wanted like trouble. Oh. So, you know, it was an interesting time. That would be a few years after we were there in the early 70s. So I think a lot of what shaped me and who I am and sort of how I walk in the world comes from a lot of things, but that climate, that particular sort of contradictory, very rich, very wacko, also very um, dangerous, you know, and also perhaps out of control that, er you know, that, that period in history spoke to a really chaotic, mm -hmm. wonderful, and also terrifying thing. And I think maybe my grasping for food as medicine was like a way to go in to the light to the good side <laughs> or like you know it was like you know yeah making a, a choice on the path early on because otherwise it felt like the void you could fall in and it was like what you know where are we going so yeah and I think you know you speak to this in the intro of uh your book um foraging and feasting a little bit but that how, how, how finding wild food gives you that control, um, where it's not like you're going into a store and having to purchase it, but you're, you're seeing these wild weeds and it's really empowering. Totally. I feel like that was a big part of my, and still is a big part of what motivates me, but now I'm older and it's kind of more complicated, but I think early on it had to do with feeling like we could make a difference. Like we mm -hmm. can make change within our bodies, within the world, by the choices we make. And also by opening our eyes to seeing the gifts that are there outside of time, like mm. when a dandelion or a lamb's quarter would show up, mm. you know, in the cracks of the sidewalk. Actually, I share this funny story sometimes when you're a city kid and there's just pavement, you know, and sidewalk and concrete. And then you see a jackhammer breaking up um, the sidewalk and underneath it is dirt right? Soil. And I'm like, mm. oh my God, <laughs> really? You know? <laughs> and you know, that's like as a, as an eight-year-old or nine-year-old, like that's what's under there, you know? Yeah. It's like, so, but I, I do need to add, I think a piece to this story, which is yeah. where maybe the seed for herbalism began or the love of plants. And I was raised uh, till I was four and a half. I was born and raised in Mexico. Uh, I'm, you know, half Mexican. My first language was Spanish. And my Mexican grandmother, um, Abuela, she actually was a plant lady. You know, I didn't know her past a certain age, 
But when I see cousins, which isn't very frequent, Mexican cousins, they're like, oh, my God, you're just like grandma. Oh, cool. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, really? Like, I don't know that, but I might, oh. you know, that's why I don't really know what's going on. But, yeah. um, you know, there's that that link and it, and it was a plant culture. So even the flavors of certain herbs, as I would be introduced to them in my early years, like the taste of saw palmetto was like, I know this plant mm. from someplace else. And right. it was probably from that, like, you know, toddler pre five-year-old period where herbs were part of the world there and part of the culture. And so, yeah, it's interesting. It's just, you know, who knows? <laughs> Do you have a first memory of wild foraging some some plant like from early on? Right. So um, I mentioned this too in foraging and feasting, but I think my first concrete, like let me forage for something. Um, so in that, as an 11 year old and already being excited by, you know, choosing foods that are going to nourish my body, they're going to make me a superhero. You know, it's like, I'm going to do mm-hmm. this thing <laughs> and I'm going to say no to the junk food and the food industry and all this making that commitment at a really young age, there was a a pretty important character named Mickey Carter, who was an informal mentor. And he had cured himself of terminal illness. He was a very inspiring and he was unknowing at that time, but he was basically who inspired me and, and guided me and gave me my first herb book. And he would drink peppermint tea always. Like after he would eat a meal, he would drink peppermint tea. And so, um, I went to summer camp and went uh, to, I mean, you're, you know, it's a horseback riding camp. All these fields of mint were there. And that's what I remember. I was like, oh my God, I've got to gather this for Mickey. Wow. You know? And cool. it was like, I don't even know if it made it back to New York because it was in Ohio. If I dried it right, I was like 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was like, this is what we go to the herb store to buy there in the village. He pays money for this. I'm going to gather this for him, you know? Wow. And, that's my first me- concrete memory. But like I said, who knows what I was doing when we were in Mexico, perhaps we were already foraging and that's mm-hmm. not just so clear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll add to, to the part of the question of where you began to forage. Yeah. Really as an urban child, that neighborhood had like herb stores. There was five or four within a few minutes from our apartment. Wow. So you could forage in a sense the plants, but that's where I didn't feel their life force in the way that when I would meet the peppermint or like I was blown away by, yeah, these plants that you can buy in a jar, you know, are actually out there wild mm. and, and available to us. So I'm sitting here surrounded by raspberry leaf. Why am I buying it dried over there? You know, like uh-huh. those sorts of connecting the dots, but the foraging energy, I think plant related, but I'm going to put it into more of my biography, which is like a forager, somebody who's constantly seeing what's amazing wherever they are in in a way. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like foraging, like there were junk shops and there were serious secondhand clothing stores. Like I'm foraging in that realm, you know, it's, (laughs) it's like, but now I'm foraging in nature and I'm moving through the landscape and I'm like, who are you? And what are your gifts? You know, that that same inquisitive treasure hunting, searching curiosity that comes from that urban kid setting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of uh, dumpster diving in my day. And uh, to me, that's always been like a kind of foraging. Totally. It can be very fun. But another thing that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is that realization 
of when the jackhammer goes through the concrete and hits the earth. Mm. Um, and it's that, you know, we sometimes think that and our culture tends to think that we're separate from nature, but really we aren't. I mean, even in the city, we're part of, of nature. And I just think that's a, that kind of speaks to that underlying thing where like, you know, and maybe being in the city um, and not having access to the wild plants as much makes it even more important. Totally. And, and when they would, when you would see, when I see wild plants in New York city, um, or even, I, I can't recall, it was last year doing a plant walk in a part of Brooklyn. And the magic of finding catnip in the crack of the sidewalk, you know, and finding just all food and medicine everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just, it's always so, uh, it feels so reassuring. And it's, you know, that, that feeling like you're saying of we're being provided for and we, we don't even know it, you know, and, and look mm-hmm. what's underneath the cement, look what's in the cracks of the sidewalk. There's food and medicine growing everywhere. So for me, that worldview is also really f- heart filling and beautiful. You know, it's like an important navigating tool, like a different sense of reality than, okay, everything is behind a paywall. And, you know, yeah. this is, so it, it is, that was part of the motivation also as a teacher too, is like, how do we help people to wake up to seeing that everything is right here? And the practice for myself as well, because I'm two people in a sense, I'm a hybrid of a modern and a primitive almost, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like, how do, my, how, am I remi- how do I remind myself too of the abundance? How do I stay, stay tuned into that and, and feel the beauty of that world? that is real in there <laughs> it's just like you know we're chasing after the time and the dollar and whatever so right. yeah so you mentioned your grandmother was a big influence in your early life as well as um the mentor what was his name with the peppermint tea Mar- Mar- his name well first of all let me talk about uh, elba she's my yeah. abuela elba she is not necessarily somebody who i was consciously aware of her influence it's sort of recurring now or returning so that's a different yeah. thing. You know, it's kind of interesting. True. I don't know what seeds she actually planted. Uh-huh. It wasn't like I held a memory. In fact, it's more confusing. And my life shifted from being a Mexicana, a little, you know, Latin girl to a New York City urban child because my mom was from that culture. So I'm of two worlds there. So my grandmother has influence in me, but I'm still learning what that is. That's one thought just there. But then the piece with Mickey Carter. Mickey. So he was part of the, the world there growing up as a kid and mm-hmm. a teenager. Yeah, he was, he was there in a real, real way, um, just as a human being who was loving and really supportive of all of us crazy street kids. Mm. And you know, he really held a certain light for us. And then I leaned into him at that 11 year old age and was like, I want to do something, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling good here. How do I improve myself? Like, how can I do things, Mm. you know? And he was like, well, you can cut out all the junk food, first of all. And I'm like, Mm. okay, no more bubble yum. Goodbye, devil dogs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No more potato chips, you know, Mm. unless they're naturally produced, you know? And it was like, (laughs) oh, (laughs) yeah. But anyway, so that's Mickey Carter. Yeah. But he, he was not an official he was not an official mentor in a sense. He was a neighborhood Santa Claus almost, like a neighborhood mm-hmm. benevolence. And sometimes those are, the, those are the best. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so who would you consider to be some of your 
teachers and um, more influential mentors as you grew? Yeah. So then I would say Pam Montgomery, when she began teaching her, her herbal, her herbal work as a teacher, I was her right there, like as one of her early, I think her first quote apprentice, a friend and I actually, we were two apprentices, her first two. And then I stayed working with Pam and I actually began to make the medicines for Green Terrestrial, which was her company Mm. in the late eighties. So she was a super important early influence. Um, And she also was connected to an herb world that opened up for me through her, which is a beautiful thing. So she created the Green Nations Gathering, which was one of the earlier herb conference. So she um, would bring together, you know, it was a few hundred of us or whatever, and all herbalists from all different walks of life would gather and teach. And I actually had the opportunity to teach as a young herbalist there too. I would pretty much be the plant walk, one of the plant walk offerings. But so those settings also were pretty awesome because then you're tasting herbal teachers from all over, mostly all over the U.S. She wasn't doing that much international. Um, So that was happening and that was very influential. And through those connections, um, I connected with Ryan Drum, with Rosemary Gladstar, um, with Amanda McQuaid Crawford. And I never like went into, how would you say, apprenticeships with them. But Rosemary had uh, a program she called Beyond Herbology 101. And her first one that she launched Ryan, she and Amanda, they headed that one up and a bunch of us, Pam and a bunch of other herbalists who were a bit older than me, I was probably the youngest, we were all there and that also had a big impact. Um, But through that, Ryan Drum said, you should connect with William Lasassier. So Mm -hmm. he, he was a practitioner in New York City. I don't think he had a really good reputation as a person but he had an amazing reputation as a clinical herbalist. I wanted to be a clinician because I felt like the wise woman approach, which is also dear to my heart, was very generic. Mm -hmm. It was like, people were asking me, what should I do for this health issue? And, you know, everybody's like, nettle, if you have kidney issues, dandelion, your liver, you know, echinacea, you have a cold. Like it was all very allopathic almost like, you have an herb and it treats this. And I don't, I didn't even relate to life that way. It's mm. so much more complicated, but um, it is also really empowering to know you can use nettle to support immunomodulation, but it's complicated. And so we would, in a sense, we were dumbing down herbalism on a certain level. And in a way that's good, but it's also limited and it can cause some issues. And so I wanted to get a little bit more involved with helping people. So the first thing was like sort of devouring up the land, the plants, really learning plants. And the initiation with Pam kind of just kept my, that my own momentum just kept rolling. So it was like learning the ecosystem that surrounded me, every new plant, like doing my own plant study. That was a big, big thing. So I sort of left Pam and kind of (laughs) went on. I mean, Pam, I didn't leave Pam. She's always with me in my heart, but (laughs) you know, she kind of didn't go to a more nuanced place with practitioner work and also my desire to really know the plant kingdom. So I just just kept on with learning and learning. Um, and then William came into my world and he wasn't on the teaching scene. Ryan really planted that seed. He's like, go check him out, you know, and I was like, okay. And I wrote 
um, letters to William and he really didn't respond. And I forget, it took a while. And then finally, I just kind of got in there and said, you know, do you want to do this? Uh, I, I need a, a mentor, some sort of clinical training. I want to work with clients. And he's like, sure. We met in the city. His office was in New York City, back to the urban setting. Mm-hmm. So I would, go, I would go to the city and my training with him lasted not three years, under three years, but it was just a, a tutorial, he and I. And um, it was pretty peculiar and kind of amazing and, and wacky. And, he, you know, I really trained, trained to be a practitioner. And then he kind of said to me after some, like two plus years passed, he's like, all right, see ya, goodbye, get out of here. <laughs> he sort of like kicked me out. He's like, I have nothing more to teach you. I'm done. You're cooked, you know. And, <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, I'm always here if you need something, but get out of here kind of energy. And I was like, okay, you know, but we, I had a lot of practice because what I would do is take clients, like I would do intakes and then take the intakes to him. And then we would refine the protocols and, and then plus he was downloading all of his knowledge. So I was just having like endless note-taking. And um, so anyway, that was, he was a huge part of my, my clinical training. And um, yeah. So William, he passed away, you know, and, and, uh, mm-hmm. but there's, there's so much, there's endless things to say there. And, and in truth, what ended up happening was after learning about clinical work, I realized I knew nothing. It was like, mm-hmm. he kind of knew nothing, although he pretended he knew everything. <laughs> it was like, you know, I was like, oh, like, we don't really know. And, you know, other herbal friends like Ann McIntyre is a close friend, but she was like, you'll never know, like, if something mm-hmm. actually is effective because everyone is so individual. So we all go around with this attitude of knowing when in fact it's the interaction between so many living things, you can't even control that. So it made me feel very empowered on the one hand to be able to do really good case taking and to help someone and to be there on their journey. But it made me feel really clear about that we do not know outcomes Mm. and we cannot know even though I feel like I'm a really great clinician, doesn't mean I know anything, you know? So, mm-hmm. and William said, you're going to have to do 500 cases of the exact same thing before you can even have a sense of knowing. Wow. You know? wow. And I'm like, that's probably never even going to happen, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, so that's a long answer to who influenced my development. Yeah. Yeah. William Lassassier is like, very influential to other herbalists too, like Matthew Wood and David Winston and Margie Flint and you. So it's interesting. I haven't really heard too much about him. It's probably because he did pass away in 2003. Um, But I'm curious if you could um, elaborate just a little bit on what his style is and like, what are the types of things that you, you learned from him that really, you know, you carry with you today? Yeah. I mean, hmm there's so many levels to comment on, you know, it's like, I think he, you may not have heard of him either because he was, I think kind of kicked out of the herb community and my my working with him um, and bringing him into my world and then introducing him to the conference creators like Pam. Mm -hmm. um, And then he was brought back somewhat into the circle, but that would be like 20 years later. Mm. And there was some political sort of personal craziness, I think, because he was a crazy dude. He was super (laughs) crazy. Mm -hmm. And 
a part, and I have all these notebooks of like what he, his protocols and how to, you know, how to take a case. Like the, the, there's all these questions. There's like, I don't know, the 28 questions. Mm-hmm. There's all of the different types of reading somebody from physiognomy, like face reading, you know, nail reading, tongue reading, pulse reading. Like we were really going through like all of these systems. He really mm-hmm. was so generous and, and then what his protocols would be, you know, and, and we would, and then of course I was bringing cases to him. So then we were learning. I was a form, basically I learned formulation from him. I, I think you could say I learned diagnosis and formulation, Okay. but my own version of it, because I, you know, when I'm a rebel myself, so anybody tells me one thing, I'll be like, okay, I get it. And then I sort of really hold it, but then I also break it apart. Mm, so yeah. kind of like that thing. Um, but so, I mean, I had, so what did he give me? I mean, it's almost like somebody to push against in a way, as well as a to thrust take. block. Yeah. Yeah. And also to really feel so honored by the gifts that he offered me. He really wanted to, me to know everything <laughs> like <laughs> what we could share, even if it was bullshit, you know, whatever it was mm. like, I'm, I'm getting it, you know, and there was like this really beautiful gift in that and empowerment to like, mm, yeah. And, and so he, yeah, so Materia Medica, like Endless Materia Medica comes from him and the, the, the concept of how to create a formula heavily influenced by him mm-hmm. and his whole triune system. He's got oh, this yeah. whole thing, which I sort of like have inside of me and also say like, fuck that, you know, and then also mm-hmm. come back to it. And it's like, but it's really, it's like he, it's like he helped me develop my language as a clinician, I think mm-hmm. is how I would say it. Um, yeah. And Thank I'm so you. grateful to him. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'll add that he, he never, uh, it was an unpaid meaning financially different reality. I would only gift him in the herbs that he wanted. I would dig burdock root or gather some esoteric thing from the woodlands that he wanted or bring mm-hmm. him, you know, a roadkill deer. Or <laughs> nice. It was nice. like, that's you know, awesome. Yeah. It was really outside of time. Also, there was something mm-hmm. pretty pretty magical and you know and and the gift of what he gave me is also (laughs) it's like okay the gift of giving back you Mm. know yeah so that's all there yeah Yeah, thank you for that it sounds so interesting he sounds like a classic american eccentric yeah 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 he was (laughs) i mean and i think you know part of the sessions that we would share when he was training me or whatever was like he would just share like crazy stories about his life uh-huh. you know and mm-hmm. why he might have been ostracized from the herb community and like crazy behavior crazy fights crazy stuff you yeah. know and I'm like yo okay <laughs> you know? so so do you practice clinically now still so you know I do and I've always been a clinician now it's since training with him in the early 90s um, but the climate here, as you know, is truly, we are not allowed to. So, and I was inspected the USD, what is it? The, um, I had some issues with government stuff related to a uh, recall from a company that I was supplying herbal products. It wasn't anything that I did, but anyway, the, ta- the, the reality is, is that we aren't shingle. We can't put shingles out and, and, or, or business cards as, and at least that's really what I think. Mm-hmm. We and so I've, I'm a community herbalist that's been practicing clinically, and it's only through word of mouth. So 
I'm super loud about, okay, I've got, you know, my books to tell you about and mm-hmm. online courses now are pretty loud, like buy this or look what I'm doing. But the cl- clinical work is hidden work. I see. Yeah. yeah. Esoteric. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, so do you think you could tell us a little bit more about Forging and Feasting? It is such a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it has all of these beautiful uh, pictures and all this wonderful information and the recipes. Um, how did that uh, come to be? Yeah. So that book came out of a, a vision for me, I, you know, because being in this herbal realm for so many years, I felt like foraging and feasting didn't exist. Like the herb world didn't, the, the book of herbal, the herbal world of books didn't have this book yet. Mm-hmm. And for me, I collect herb books, I collect cookbooks and, mm-hmm. and also I'm an educator and, and I'm like, I'm clear about what's missing. And so it, it, it kind of burst out of what I felt could really be useful in the world, you know, of foraging. And I decided it, it to be more of a food rather than medicine book, even though a big focus for me is herbal medicine, but the food part, which is, you know, more the core of who I am and the wild foods segueing into the medicine so that not entering from the medicinal, but entering from the food and the sexy deliciousness that becomes medicinal. So I wanted the book to be a celebration of what I call like a dandelion revolution, right? That plant mm-hmm. that I would see growing through the cracks in New York City sidewalks. It's like the power of the dandelion, also the respect for the dandelion that we're always trying to eradicate agriculturally. So we are bringing um, love to this very incredibly potent medicinal edible weed. Mm-hmm. And if we honor, so it's, it's, so this book, Foraging and Feasting, had to do with elevating these plants that we step on, that we murder, that we pollute the ecosystem to eradicate. Mm-hmm. It's about putting those plants into a beautiful frame, right? So people fall in love with them. That's mm-hmm. where I was like, how will I do this? I need a botanical illustrator. And luckily, yeah. she danced right into the world. To my how, did you, how did you find her? Like her... Um, Wendy Hollander is is your botanical illustrator and like really the images do incite this deep love and beauty like you can't look at this book and not fall in love with these plants so I think you really reached your goal like I'm curious how you did find Wendy well we we met through a mutual friend Um, she had moved to the neighborhood and we kind of on a handshake I was like you want to work on this with me (laughs) (laughs) and she's like all right and I was like okay I think a year later she's like what the hell did I just get into (laughs) you know I was pretty involved like in fact she drew one plant garlic mustard and then it had to be completely revamped because we needed different information because Uh she's a beautiful illustrator but she wasn't teaching through she she so I needed nuancing. I needed to control what was going to be seen heavily. And so she was willing to grow with me in that and create these illustrations based on what I was seeing in my mind that I needed because I teach it. So it was like, we need this. It's the plant story. It's not what I was seeing in my mind. It's mm-hmm. what the viewer needed to see in their mind so they could know they had the right plant. Right. right? So I had to be a heavy critiquer. So I was the art director and then really she didn't know the wild plant she learned with me on this journey so she would I would have to bring her to the plant at exactly the right times and then show her 
it was, you know, a really intense thing that I was so grateful she was willing to do, but it wasn't like I could just let her do her thing. In fact, I realized I bit off more than I realized. It was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to completely take over this art part as well. And it made it so that it's a book that speaks exactly what I had wanted it to speak, Mm. you know, plus her gift of being able to make it beautiful. Plus the plants are beautiful. So it's like you fall in love, you know, and it's not in a negative way, but I was able to use her as a tool to sort of bring this to life visually. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and she was willing to do it. So I'm so grateful for her, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that, so, so that's how Wendy came into the picture. Plus as she would say that I started to make sure to feed her well, because she was really (laughs) like jump off, you know, she's like, I'm done. I'm done. You know, I was like, no, 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 we're not done. You know, know, she's anyway. So that was a super serendipitous, amazing thing. That was also intense. It wasn't like a fairy sprinkle. It was like, put the hard work in big time you know, being the art director and then designing those pages, I was really so involved with how that book tells its story from mm-hmm. completely the image and, you know, the, the uh, vision of it in my mind to every single detail of creating that book it was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wendy was so super great with it too. I mean, I, I didn't do it all on my own, incredible amount of support, but mm-hmm. at every step I orchestrated everything so people could feel empowered. It wasn't about what I was thinking. It was about how do we make this tell its story? And the story was, how do we get people to fall in love with the plant kingdom, especially with the plants that everyone steps on, especially with the plants that everyone has access to so we can really make a revolution. (laughs) It's like, yeah. and how do we then take those plants and make people food literate, kitchen literate, So then that's my whole other passion is the kitchen is how do you, because as an 11 year old making that choice to eat healthy food, that wasn't like, I wasn't going to have a cook there. My mom was like, yeah, you do it then. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's not me choosing. Oh, great. Thank you for my vegan menu or my whole foods menu. It was like, Mm -hmm. you're going to go make the, you're going to shop for all of this and you're going to cook it all. And that's Mm -hmm. what I did. So it became another self-empowering, a sovereignty thing of like taking that on. And so the cookbook is trying to do the same thing. Like, let me empower everyone. Can we get you all to wake up to your, you know, wild food chef making instincts or soup making instincts? I say all these things, you know, but it's like really to make it so people feel like it's fun, it's doable, it's also delicious and it ends up being really healthy for you, healthy for the planet, you know, so it's got this, the book though, I have to just say is about being delicious and beautiful. And it doesn't have to be, what's the energy that I'm saying? It doesn't, you don't have to know it's revolutionary. (laughs) You You know, you don't have to know about it as something that I'm really underneath it is an intense tool where I want to see the world change. Mm. You know, mm. it's about cleaning up the ecosystem. It's about taking care of our bodies with our own hands or those of our loved ones with our, you know, so it's that energy of shifting from the medical industrial complex, the mm-hmm. food industrial complex, you know, taking back 
the power on a grassroots level so we can change the world. That's what that book is about. <laughs> I think, yeah, you've really succeeded with all of those goals. Like I've, I've personally had to buy the book about four or five times now because I just keep giving it away at, to people as <laughs> a gift because, you know, you, whether they're a clinical herbalist friend of mine or whether it's like someone who's just kind of into cooking and just scrape, scratching the surface of wild foods, it appeals to many different people. And I think it really does get them on board with the plants. And I just have to say that you, it's like a masterpiece. It's my favorite herb book and you did such a beautiful job on it. So I do recommend to all our listeners just go pick up a copy. Yay. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll add to that, which is kind of makes me laugh, but the point was that it would be something that could be slipped around and then make those changes. Like people won't even know they're transforming as they're falling in love with these things that they want to like spray to death. And instead they're like, Oh my God, I love this plant. Let me go figure this out. How do I eat it? You know? And yeah. so the, the, um, a lot of the um, realtors buy the book and give it as gifts to the customer, you know, to the clients that they're selling, you know, oh, with, cool. with. Nice. So, like they leave it in the houses. Like they've Aww. sold it. Whatever. So I love that, you know, it's like, yeah. okay, I don't even know if these realtors are like foodies or who they are, but I hear <laughs> that from book, the bookshops in my neighborhood because they buy more and they're like well the realtors are buying these and leaving them for their you know so it's like it's it's a yeah so it's the whole thing about celebrating through tastiness through loveliness through beauty you know and and kind of coming in from that angle yeah it's pretty plant cunning <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, for sure <laughs> so I've been foraging for a large part of my life and looking at the, the plants that you chose for this book is really interesting to me um, because it, it does, it seems like you focused on the plants that are common and that you're not going to be in danger of over harvesting, you know? So like they're not the ramps aren't in here, but you've got, you've got dandelion and you've got garlic mustard and wild chives, you know, all of those plants that are common and, and, everyone is going to come across. So is there like, how did you choose these 50 plants? Is that yes. a big part of it? You're right. I mean, I chose inv- invasives or really prolifics because they're what everyone can access. And there isn't um, the concern around endangering those plants. In fact, we'll help, we'll help the ecosystem if everyone gets to start eating their garlic mustard, you know? Yeah. Um, but then, so there is, so the bigger, if you pull out of the vision, it's also about celebrating what's really common and abundant rather than mm. precious and far away and distant and hard to get. Mm, so that's yeah. another part of the worldview that I cu- want to cultivate for myself is practicing what's right in front of me and seeing what gifts it offers. So these plants, I'm hoping most people can step, will be stepping on. And then it's, it's like pulling the veil away, you know, and you're seeing something, oh my God, for the first time, but so it's, it's a democratic or a, it's like a people's approach rather than the ramp hunting, right? Or the morale hunting, which I also love. And, um, but it's, it's not to make it so that it's so hard to do. It's to make it so that, oh my God, this is right here for you at your fingertips. So the plants I chose, a lot of them speak to that and they're cosmopolitan worldwide weeds, maybe 35 of them are like that. So you're going to find them in temperate zones of the world. So it's about, you know, people access. It's not about the New York Times, you know, doing the fiddlehead or the ramp or the morel. And then they have such a short window 
plus you have to be really careful about or you should know more about how to forage for those and we need to take care and I think I may you know for all I know maybe I will do a book more on those but that book will have to do with understanding how those plants grow and how we can help them to grow and you know so it's I'm I'm very I do love all of those specialty things too but I wanted this book to celebrate what everyone has access to and yeah. Um, and then I chose some other weirdo ones. Which, yeah. I noticed yeah. you have Scazandra in there, exactly. which I've, I've never found yeah. that in the wild. <laughs> nope. Exactly. So then I pretend I'm like an Asian, like someone from China or Japan or wherever it grows wild. Because what happens is I have a very wild garden here and I introduce plants that I think are really useful, Shazandra being one of them. And I'm also a permaculturist. So that frame of thinking before permaculture was something I understood. It was something that I did. And then now I actually find it very inspiring. I've been trained and gone through a lot of different, you know, P, whatever they are called, the PD. Uh, PDCs. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So, and I, and I resonate so much, but it was something that we were doing here before that, but it speaks the yeah. language that I speak also. So anyway, a lot of permaculture folks put in Shizandra, they have no idea what to do with it. Mm. A lot of the plants then that aren't the common ones are the permaculture ones. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what you're going to see. And yeah. so it's like someone's wacky wild garden and then yeah. answering to that, like, do you know what to do with your Shizandra berry? You know, <laughs> have it. <laughs> But how are you going to use it? <laughs> right. Well, it seems like it's also a good handbook for a, a forest gardener for like how to actually utilize those those plants. Exactly. And these plants are what are in my gardens. They're the wild plants of our area. Um, and like you'll see the poppies there, which I fell in love with in the Mediterranean as wild food. And then they began to take over my garden here. So it was the same theme of like, who's in the garden that you bring in actually and gets kind of wild and crazy. Yeah. Um, and sweet Sicily, that's the European, the Muriso Dorada is not wild, but it gets wild if you bring (laughs) it, you know, so I cheat in. So, and some purists who are foragers might get pissed at me for that, you know, because it's like, well, they're not really wild. It's like, I know they (laughs) are and they aren't. And if you were in Europe, it would be, or if you were in Asia it would be, or the Mediterranean. So I take some Liberty because I feel like it was it's important to share that and it is because people can put these in they become somewhat invasive sometimes and they're gifts and we can use them so that was the idea yeah so maybe the the person who finds this in their new house and starts you know learning about dandelion and dame's rocket then then they'll see the you know the walking onion and oh I could put that in exactly Yeah. yeah that's cool so could you could you tell us a little bit about your garden yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah so well so we so Tim and I have been here on this land it's now 22 years 23 years 1998 so 23 almost this July and what we do here is pretty wacky <laughs> it's really like you know working with the landscape long term but also short term and we Tim and I also differ to some extent like I need to see a lot of the weeds that he might choose to remove. So for me, I'm less of a controller of the ecosystem. He's more of a controller. So now we sort of have two separate parts of our garden. There's like two distinct gardens, Mm -hmm. even though he and I originally created both of them um, now, because I would be like, you can't take the violets out there, you know, (laughs) and he needs more control. And I understand that. 
So my garden is much more kooky. His is really kooky too. But, um, you know, the gardens, so the gardens from my perspective are about where wild and cultivated come together. Mm, yeah. And, and that's the tension and the beauty. And also um, it speaks to the bigger pull away from the garden, but really the human species on earth and how can we be co-creative how are we the keystone species on earth, which we really are? How do we take that role seriously? So it's a little mimic of that yeah. inside the, pra the practice of the garden. Um, and so I, you know, I'm like, you know, I see a new friend. I don't know who arrives, a bird brought it or, or soil got turned up and something shows up. And I study that plant, you know, that's part of my thrill. It's like, okay, who you are, who are you? I'm going to watch you for a year or two or whatever. <laughs> cool. And you know, that's part of how I've learned the plants is really that way, being a very slow time observer. And that's like a, a super fun thing for me, a nerdy thing. Um, but so the gardens welcome wildness while also having a control. So there's a lot of boundaries that I set and within them, I'm breaking them constantly based on the dialogue between the wild and the cultivated. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre mindset. And it's probably just the nature of who I am. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know. art wild, part cultivated. Yeah, yeah. And also one in the same. I mean, that demarcation is also tricky. Right. Um, but I'll bring in plants too that I want that are endangered. And so they have a place in the landscape. I have amazing golden seal patches. Oops, I shouldn't say that because I don't want anyone coming here. I've got amazing things here. And, <laughs> and then I have super weedy partners right next to them. And people will be like, what? Like, how could you leave that there? And it's like, they're doing fine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but you do need to control your invasives. And I'm one of those that is a fan of garlic mustard. And yet, when it starts to seed, I have to make sure that I do control it to a certain extent and I let it be in a certain way. So, because it's, for me, it's a great source of wild food. Yeah. Um, and, and yet um, I do need to respect, you know, my golden seal patch and right. the garlic mustard cannot take that over, but mm -hmm. you can do that dance well. And so part of that forging and feasting book too, is to show people they can really know a plant and know how to control it. If that's also what needs to happen which it does. So it's not like we just want gold, uh, 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 garlic mustard to take over the world because I really don't. Biodiversity is a big thing that I have going on here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 300 plus species of plants and the very, very invasives to the very, very endangered are all here. Mm. And, yeah, you know, so balance. Yeah, and you're the yeah. keystone species that's keeping it all in balance. Yeah, I think that's your point, right? It's like, that's a point too. who we are humans here. How do we do this? And right. And, and um, be take that power, you know, because we are affecting as we know, we're super, we're, we're super powerful within the ecosystem right now. And we're not doing a good job. And it's like, we need to take our job seriously. So I'm sort of like, not into the people who say hands off nature, even mm -hmm. though I love areas that are maybe completely hands-off, I feel like we need to be part of it and we need to connect with creating rather than humans are just horrible and they need to get out and be hands-off. Mm, I don't think right. that's real either. It's yeah. this in-between place. And then we can, I think human activity, and I speak to this in the book too, is like our actions can create so much abundance through the way that we work with the landscape.
more than if we just left it alone. Like if right. you if you come into a landscape that's pretty goldenrod, goldenrod can be very aggressive and, and it's a native, but it can take over meadows. It's a very monoculture. It's not like if you take hands off, humans leave. Do you have a lot of biodiversity? You don't. So as a human in that setting, you can go in there and you could plow part of it and you would have so much more biodiversity. Mm. Yeah. Because the action of disturbing the soil brings up those seeds that creates all this biodiversity. So humans feel like they're bad if they engage. And I'm saying mm, yes and no. We have to know, you know, what we're doing. Right. We're so, a powerful yeah. tool. Yeah, exactly. So like, as, yeah. as, as much as we can be destru- destructive, we can be at least that much beneficial. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think taking that power back and owning it rather than stepping away from it and being afraid of it. And it's, I understand it. I understand being afraid because we do so many destructive things. And I don't like to see soil tilled up, but I have to celebrate like Tim who uses this like, you know, crummy old tractor thing to run around the property. And sometimes it, <laughs> ruts, you know, it ruts soil, it will rut it. Right. And I can feel like, ah, you're disturbing the soil. And then I realize, you know what, there's going to be a lot of good stuff that pops right there. Mm. So yeah. it's like, okay, you know, I have to let go myself of my preconceptions of human activity too. Anyway, I, I, I you know, I can go down all kinds of rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah. So do you, for your clinical practice, do you mostly harvest from your land for the medicine that you make? So I, I harvest some from here. A lot of what I do here on the land is that it serves as a sort of an educational repository. Mm. So it's like a place for folks to really tune in meat plants. Um, I have taught like this hands-on class, a six month intensive for like 20, 20, many years. I don't, I don't remember 20 something years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this place serves as a foundation, like for that to happen. So more than that, I have enough of everything here to make medicine from it's that I have enough for folks to learn from, um, and to feed ourselves. Cause there's a lot of wild food that we might make in those programs. And so, but, and then, yes, I do make medicine from the land, but I also mm-hmm. step out of the land to make medicine a lot. Like if there's, you know, a skullcap patch, I have a secret spot, you know, mm-hmm. or like just different s- places all around, Yeah. you know, or even not even, even, maybe I might need to go somewhere else. Like for Uva Ursi, I'm going to go to a sandy zone. And, mm-hmm. um, but then I'll also lean on friends or other growers um, and have that too. So I'm, and I no longer, when I make a lot of what William did was he formulated dry tea blend. So we would do a lot of herb mixing. Um, formulas and the dry herbs I do not do here at all that that's all purchased from other herb growers so I can't I can't afford to do everything like I decided a while ago that I was going to make that choice Mm. because I was originally trying to do everything and there's pounds like hundreds of pounds of herbs that I'm not going to be able to grow Mm -hmm. and dry Mm -hmm. here so I buy that in so I don't yeah so I'm not in any way self-sufficient you know that's Mm -hmm. another thing I'm very dependent for certain things, not, you know, and then yes, lots of the tinctures and herbal infused oils, they come from here or the landscape Mm -hmm. that I go to. Um, But yeah, yeah. 
drying is a whole thing. Exactly. It's like you need so much space. And I I think every herbalist and, and homesteader who starts making their own food and canning and things like that, they realize that it's like most, there's so much Tetris that goes on with like being able to like store the herbs and all these projects, you know, it's, it's a lot. And so it's good to focus on specific things. And like you said, to lean on other people who are also doing it right to really provide the best, you know, herbs for the people that we're serving. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. We can't do everything. I mean, I'm, I was, I was trying to do everything and then I made that choice and I'm not doing that. Yeah. (laughs) Although I will dry some and I, and again, they do go into usually, you know, the tincture making or the herbal infused oils, Mm -hmm. but, and then my own tea blends, but not enough for client base work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, to go back a little bit to forging and feasting, there's one part about in, in there in the in the cookbook part that I find really interesting and really important and helpful, and that's the idea of master recipes. And like I learned from my mom how to like make a hot and sour soup, and but it can depend on what time of the year and what ingredients I'm adding, you know. So like it's very flexible. Uh, do you think you could tell our listeners about? how well like what a master recipe is sure absolutely um yeah thanks for bringing that up so that's also how i teach and the idea is to teach literacy you know so you're helping you're empowering people to understand like in a recipe how it works and you give uh the template and then you explain in the recipe i explain what parts are actually not foundational that you can um uh, move in and out of. So there is a foundational part and then there are these that you have choices for. So I act like you got to follow these rules or else you're going to crumble your story, right? So follow the rules I give you, but you can choose, you know, what colors or what, so you have a, you, you, you have a architecture that you follow, but within that you have a lot of play. So the idea is to give the viewer, the reader, a kitchen, the literacy around food, so they understand. Like, so if you have a gratin, or you know, or you're making a wild green pesto, or whatever it is, you're never at a dead end because you don't have the exact wild food or the exact. Even I, I also translated over, over to cultivated foods because I didn't want people to um, feel like a roadblock. It was, yeah. you know, it was like stay open, understand, and when you when I share the cultivated or the wild versions of a, of, of a recipe that also really develops food literacy and wild plant literacy. So you understand, huh, that plant plays the same role as this spinach wood or this Swiss chard wood or whatever. So it has to do with swapping out different wild plants for each other, or even cultivated plants for the wild ones to develop this vegetable literacy which was part of our history, but it's just been shut down. So it's to, it's to, again, it's always about empowering the reader. It's like, how do we help hold you up so your creativity can start popping? You can start using, and as a forager, we know that has to be the way because the landscape, the gifts are always turning and changing. You know, We're not static with something. We can't always get the same veg. So the idea was, I mean, I really appreciate cookbooks, but 
a lot of them make you feel a little bit like you're in a dead end because if you don't have exactly that vegetable or you don't have that particular ingredient and even while food cookbooks that I love and collect they make it so precious like you have to have this and I wanted to make what what's precious is actually what you can find yeah plug in and then empower you to move forward so the master recipes I think of as you know as these architecturally um these rules that you follow, but that actually free you to be using whatever's flowing through the landscape. Yeah. It's kind of like a pattern language. Like, yes, I love that book. Yes. Yeah. It's like, it's like the recipe pattern, you know, (laughs) and if you know how to make a pesto, then you can make a pesto with anything that's Mm. green. Exactly. And then when you start looking at the pesto and then you start realizing it's a paste and then you can make herbal spreads and then you can leave the cheese out and you mo- move over to these toppings that you can put on, you know, it's like this beautiful right. way to demystify, mm. not make less mystical, because that isn't the point, but like, not make mysterious, you know, it's like to make it more exciting, but not like um, a barrier, you know, so, yeah. and for me, you know, I am a f- cookbook collector. So those hundred master recipes were there, are there, but they offer a few thousand recipes <laughs> and testing that many recipes, you know, I'm insane, but it's like from years of working with, you know, simple classic recipes, because the cookbook does have classic recipes. It's not trying to be like, I'm inventing something totally new. It's more like, let's break down the language of recipes and then make sure you know how to use what co- what's in the landscape or how you customize it to your needs. It's different, you know what I mean? It, and it becomes, ex- it, it does become exotic because I mean, Papa ice cream is like super exotic. Oh yeah. You're, you're using a basic um, ice cream template. Right. So, so that's the idea. It wasn't like, let me take you out on this far fringe of making foam and ash, you know, and like things that are actually super cool, but I wanted this to be, Again, like can the, the, the cookbook section stands alone that someone could just use to become kitchen literate, food mm-hmm. literate. They don't even have to forage, you know, they yeah. can, you know, that's the idea. Mm-hmm. So um, speaking of like a template, I really want to talk about bone broth with you a little bit because I think it's such a powerful food slash medicine for our times right now. It's just people really need that like deep nourishment. And I was wondering if you could just briefly go over like how someone can make bone broth and what the benefits of it would be and maybe some of the ways that you use it in other recipes sure so and in the book you can see that I devote quite a bit to bone broth (laughs) I love that yeah yeah but somebody's like yo this is a book about wild plants what's bone broth doing in here um but again and I know a lot of my readership or viewers are vegan and you know what I was a vegan as as that preteen 11 year well not at 11 years old but I became a vegan and I don't want to what's the word hmm I I I guess I have alienate. to I don't want to alienate and I have to admit that I don't think anymore that veganism is is necessarily healthy for a lot of people it certainly wasn't for me but I was a super hardcore vegan um, and most people who know me from my early years when they see me are like, I'm a vegan now, they tell me, you know, and I'm like, sorry, I'm not. But it's like, that's how people associate me. It was like, as a teenager, it was like hardcore vegan. 
And the motivation around the veganism was again about health. And anyway, so in the book, there's a lot of honoring. I do love whole foods, vegan food, meaning it's delicious. And if it's done right, it's right on, but it's deficient. So the bone broth can come in <laughs> and support that. Um, and I do work a lot clinically with vegans and vegetarians. And so if we can get some, but I have to say, even when you look at the bone broth section, that it's not limited to just bone broth drinking, but I actually push the bone eating. So it's also that you want to be nibbling whatever bones have been softened enough to chew and also eating the marrow. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty different approach. And so bone broth, and actually I would say, gosh, that's such a big, big topic, but I, I, know. <laughs> I would say bony cuts of meat, bony, less expensive cuts, often throwaway cuts are what you're going to make your bone broth with. Uh -huh. um, so it's really a poor person's way of getting pretty amazing nutrition. Um, the nutrition is limited though. The bone broth is one piece of a big puzzle. I don't just want bone broth in the menu. And oftentimes people might just do that and it's protein deficient ultimately. So there's a lot to say, but let's celebrate the bone broth beauty thing. And for me, that's where what the whole animal is gifted its life and you save all the parts that are gelatinous and bony and even the sinewy sort of like things that you can't chew, but it's more like it's, it's fleshy stuff that's actually not chewable that's amazing broth too. So it's like you're saving all these things that the animal is made of and you turn that into this amazing, beautiful, nutrient-dense uh, richness that would have been trashed, you know? Um, but then of course, whatever's left that you can chew, you're gonna eat that. And then also what is left, you would compost. So for me, it's like whole animal, full honoring, you know, that's kind yeah. of the goal there. And nutritionally speaking, bone broth can really offer a lot um, of glycine, of gelatinous, uh, what would you say, cartilaginous material that breaks down and soothes the gut and soothes the nervous system. So it has this really positive influence. And if you put that bone broth into, let's say, a lentil soup, you really increase the nutritional value of that lentil soup. Um, so you know, there's all these layers to the bone broth, but then there's this other little thing about bone broth, which is sometimes it's better for certain types of people, especially if they're having autoimmune issues that they don't do long simmered bone broths, which I actually am into, but that they would do bony cuts that they simmer maybe, or take a whole chicken and simmer it just for seven or so hours. And they're going to be drinking that broth and eating the meat and, and eating the, the cartilaginous parts. So um, yeah, I'm more of a bone brother that's like all about all the parts and, and not just bone broth only bone broth plus, ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. but I don't know. Did I answer your questions? I'm trying to yeah. think what, about the bone broth. Yeah. Well, it's um, also something you can add. So like we'll add reishi to yes. bone yes. broth or astragalus. There you go. Dandelion. But so it's yeah another one of those uh, master recipes that you can. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, there's the, so the bone broth reality is that you can make a bone broth with a whole chicken and start drinking that broth after three to four hours. And that's pretty nice stuff, but then you can continue to remove the meat and cook those bones for another 24 hours. And there you have another kind of bone broth. So 
I'm not like, and if that's why that chapter, that bone broth section is so complicated is I'm trying to share all these aspects. It's not like if you don't cook the bone broth for 24 hours, then it's not right. It's a different thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and then what, what animal are you using? Um, how long do you cook it? Um, depending on your gut health. And if you have glutamate issues, you don't necessarily want to cook it as long like glutamic acid is released during bone broth making, which can trigger some allergenic issues for clients. So those clients, I'm gonna push them over to the lightly more stewy broths. You know, they're not as long cooked where more glutamate is released. So there's like all these nuances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, totally. But yes, and then of course the reishi, like this year was a crazy year. Yeah. Ganoderma tsuge around here. And that's just going in to the broths exactly and the maitake was crazy going into the broths you know and and whatever mushroom reality or astragalus mm -hmm. if if i've got good astragalus that year or whatever yeah so the bone broth though i mean it's just such a playful thing yeah and it's an yeah. excuse for like honoring all the animal parts just put it in the freezer save it up and and then you'll you know make your simmering stews in the cold weather we have a wood stove so there's this whole thing I share in the bone broth section on the endless or the everlasting stock pot where it's like you actually are continually yeah. brewing your bone broth and often that's a winter thing and then freezing it and then I'll use it in the summer so I don't have to cook you know in the heat um, but I have you know a wood stove and I have the privilege of that situation um, but yeah so bone broth yeah it's it's part of a bigger story you know it's it's part of whole animal whole animal eating and also admitting to ourselves or me that the animal kingdom offers me gifts that the vegetable kingdom really can't supply. Uh, unfortunately, I wished yeah. that it could. As, a, as an herbalist, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a letdown, you know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm super curious to hear um, about Weston Price and um, what the, the person and what the diet is about. Great. So Dr. Weston A. Price was um, a dentist. Uh, he practiced in the first half of, I think, late 1800s and into the first half of the 1900s. He died, I believe, in 1945 or around there. And he he spent, I believe it was about, it was a maybe, I don't know how long the travels lasted. I think it was a 10 or maybe 15 year travel period, but he studied his whole goal was, so from, let me see if it was tw 1929 to 1939, he did world traveling. Um, but his question was, is it was a food, it was an anthropological question about, are there healthy native peoples in the world somewhere who are doing really well? Because in Cleveland at the time in the twenties, he was a dentist there in Ohio. He was really alarmed by the level of decay that he was seeing inside people's mouths. The skull was shrinking so people couldn't house their teeth anymore. And the decay level was just super intense. So he wanted to search for answers that he didn't feel he could find. He was a heavily trained, heavily educated white man of middle America. You know, he had a, he, a Baptist background or a Methodist, I can't remember, super whitey dude, you know, highly educated, pretty involved with his credentialing. And then he was like, something's not right. 
And he humbly went all around the world in search of healthy native peoples and really was asking for their wisdom. And that's what he did. So he chronicled that in his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And that talks to this um, intensive search that he was on. And he found his answers from all different walks of life of what were called primitive people at the time. His book is written from that perspective, that language of the time, which is off-putting. But yeah. what his message is, is um, they have, we have to return to the quote savage, you know, cause that's the language they were using and learn from them. They have the answers and the wisdom. And it's mm -hmm. an amazing book. I mean, you have to get over that like savage primitive, all that sort of bullshit talk. Yeah. Um, but that's not where he's coming from. He knows these people know the real deal and he wants to learn from them. And it's an incredible journey you know, in a humble journey, journey he took with his wife um, to all different parts of the world, or I should say 14 different tribes or primitive racial stock, as he put it, he studied. Um, and they varied so much in their food choices, depending on the ecosystem. They were permaculturalists, these native peoples, and they needed to work with the ecosystem and to know what to eat from it in order to thrive. If they didn't do that, they would die. So these were successful people you know, they, they were completely intermeshed with their ecosystem. Of course, there are a lot of unhealthy native peoples. A lot of people didn't do well. A lot of people died out. So here's, here were examples of, who were, of humans who were able to thrive. And that's what he wanted to learn from. And it's pretty impressive. Beautiful. That book kind of shook my world. That was a book, you know, I came out of the veganism and, and still I wasn't a vegan, but it was pretty heavy, like whole foods, whole grain based. And his book kind of shook me up. It was like, what? You know, what, what he found was that there were no vegans and there were no vegetarians. There were more plant-based eaters though. And there were more animal kingdom eaters and you could be healthy with so many different ways of eating, which was also really cool and interesting but they had underlying characteristics. So that's what the book goes into. Mm -hmm. What did these primitive cultures share that kept them well? And, you know, he had, there's so much to say, oh my God, this is a whole hour in itself. Yeah. Um, but super important work that I feel he shares in that mm -hmm. book. And, um, and there is no Weston Price diet, by the way, because everyone ate differently. Everyone's Some, different. okay. Everything is the only thing that was you could say the same was that most of the food was regionally produced, except mm -hmm. for maybe a few exceptions. So everyone was eating right what was growing near or within their bioregion and all that was whole. Mm -hmm. um, and then also so there was no refined food products. So there was no white flour, white sugar. Um, there were no vegetable fats at that time, although coconut oil, yes. So that's wrong to say vegetable fats. There were no vegetable fats. There were fruit fats. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but there, you know, and then they all had sacred animal kingdom foods that there was a certain amount of sacred animal and often, and it was always a fatty, something that had the fat soluble activators in it. That's mm -hmm. a whole trippy thing. So fats from the animal kingdom, it could be in a worm, it could be in an insect, it could be in a mammal, it could be from the ocean, it could be from dairy, 
from eggs, depending on who you were, where you were, you got it differently. But there was that core piece of the fat soluble activators and what they do to the body. And that kind of blew my mind, you know? And mm -hmm. at the time when I got turned on to this, this was probably 25, 30 years ago, Tim was fishing at the reservoir here in Ashokan and there was all of this, um, you know, literature and still that you cannot eat many fish because they hold the toxins, the fats. The fats hold the toxins. Mm -hmm. So we have these pristine waters, but because of, of climate change or whatever, the ozone depletion and it all, no, what is it? It's the acid rain that was coming from the Midwest and dropping into the reservoir and causing heavy metal contamination. Mm -hmm. And the fish were accumulating it in their fat. The fat is our medicine. Mm. It just blew my mind. I remember crying. I was just like, yeah. oh my God, we are fucking up the ecosystem. I know. And that's where we would be eating from, right? Yeah. As, a, as a native people here, or not the reservoir, because that's artificially created, but mm. the fish that right. would be in the region, these fatty fish, which are so nutrient dense. But anyway, so I go on a tangent. But the point is, Dr. Price's work was just so early, you know, and so rich and so right on. Don't get caught up in the language of it, but his intentions are beautiful. And, um, and then Sally brought the Weston A. Price Foundation into the world, honoring Dr. Price's work, but through her lens. Mm -hmm. So she's all about butter and she's all about certain things, which I love Sally. But Dr. Price's studies, many of the people didn't eat butter, uh -huh. but he felt that it was an easy way to get people to get fat soluble activators in healthy butter. So mm -hmm. he reinterpreted a lot of what he learned. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, but he isn't saying you've got to eat butter to be healthy at all. He's saying, mm -hmm. no, this is the way to get it. And then um, Sally is interpreting his work in her way. So the foundation, which I also really love and honor, might be a little bit narrow and might say certain things that aren't quite on point, but that's Sally interpreting it, you know, that she's the, the foundation um, president and yeah. And I mean, I do generally love their work, but people will think, oh my God, you have to have dairy as a, as a person of Western price. No, most of the cultures he studied didn't eat dairy, you know? So but he was, you know, just trying to make it relatable to his audience of, you know, in the U S of exactly. how people could get those fats. Yeah. And this is yeah, also yeah. at a time when, when like people are like scientists are saying fat is bad, right. you know, like not local. yet. We not didn't yet. get there okay. yet. We didn't get there yet. 1945. <laughs> this is no, the book he died oh. in 45. I'm trying to remember the book came out in 39. I'm not sure if my dates are right, but it's around there before mm -hmm. the fear on fat, which kicked in slowly and then really picked up, I believe in the late seventies. And that's mm -hmm. when it was like, but the fifties, it was bringing, it was getting kicked in, but this was a little before the fat. Yes, but you're right. That's where we are now or where we've been. And so the fats being the bad story and he's, you know, the nutrient density was what he was after. The foods mm -hmm. that the native peoples were eating were so nutrient dense. He would send the food back to the lab, to Cleveland to analyze the butter content or the seal oil content, you know, the nutrients in all these different, um, foods that native peoples were eating and he would share how they were exponentially richer in nutrients now these people lived in an ecosystem that was integrated meaning they took care of their land you know they didn't 
strip it. They didn't, they weren't doing modern agricultural practices. They were permaculturalists. They were feeding their soil. They were part of a whole system. And if they weren't, that system, you know, wouldn't support them. You know, they would, they would die out if they ripped it off because it meant ripping themselves off. So it was this beautiful dance that these people were doing. At least I'm idealizing it probably more than it was. I don't know, <laughs> but it's like, um, it's so, it's so inspiring to me. And a lot of the work that I do as a consultant is helping people to think through food choices and understanding what it means back to that early 11 year old's desire of wanting food to be our medicine and to really empower us. And like I train some clinical herbalists as well, like working with different um, people uh, like the Arborvitae school. So this, mm. there, there, it's a, there's a clinical school there and I teach them about nutrition and it's like, it's really, I mean, to me, so much health can come from knowing how to eat well, more, yeah. than, more than herbs. Yeah. And so that's something we should just, just also highlight is, yes, yeah, I'm an herbalist and I, I'm in love with the herbs, but at the same time, somebody will be like, well, can you give me an herb for that? And it's like, actually, no, we need to revise entirely what's going on with your food, with your sleep with your lifestyle, with your emotional body, that I'm not an emotional body worker, but so meaning the herbs are one um, piece of the rainbow and it's yeah. a small piece. And often I don't even get to the herbs with clients. We're working on food so much, you know, and I want them, people will get distracted by drinking an herbal infusion and not actually eating what they need to eat. So, yeah, it, yeah. It, you know, and, and at the herb conferences, I'm sort of that bad person who's like, saying that, you know, I'm, I'm at the women's herbal conference or at the international or at, at even at Green Nations back then, I'm talking about, oh my God, you can't just eat junk food and then have some tinctures and an herbal infusion. I think a lot of herbalists do think that they still are on that train of thought and they don't. Yeah. So because making lifestyle choices is, is much harder. And, and I understand that, you know, but that, yeah. So mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's so important. We just did an elimination diet to see, you know, if we have any food intolerances and it's, it's just so important. Like if, if you're eating something that you shouldn't be eating, that you have an allergy to that you have, um, or if you're not eating something that you need to be eating, then that is an underlying issue that a tincture is not going to help with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, all, I do try, try to stay open though. Let's just add yeah. this element that there are things like that, which are kind of mind blowing that somebody might not do other changes and maybe add something right. over when a whole shift occurs yeah. that can happen, but it's not yeah. that common. And I don't rely on that, but so I want to always stay open to that level of magic that perhaps could be occurring, but mostly doesn't. It's mm -hmm. mostly like you're saying, if you have an allergy to a food, maybe taking immunomodulating herbs might let you eat it. So it's possible you know, <laughs> so you're not as reactive, right? But the, root, the root issue is that you're causing irritation in your body because you're, but then again, you know, maybe do we help you so that you're not, your body's not, you know, getting onto an autoimmune track by doing immunomodulation with ratio organic, you know, whatever, even mm. metal could be helpful. Or do we pull the food out? I pull the food out, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, there's that dance to be set, you know? So again, nothing is ever black and white and I'm always self-critical on a certain level, like, hmm, well, should we be doing, you know, 
like, and your point too, right? If somebody is nutritionally deficient, that's where I feel most concerned. Yeah. People are missing the nutrients they need to heal what's happening. And so the body is a self-healing mechanism. It has so much recovery within itself. It's intrinsically a healing organism. So how do we feed it so we can do its work well? Mm. You know, and that's where I, that's really a big focus. And how do we remove the foods, not so much allergenic foods, but toxic foods, foods that uh-huh. are, yeah. you know, full of things that are just straight up liver burdens, including yeah. things like alcohol, you know, right. like, you know, so there is, yeah. So the, the, so I'm a sort of terrible herbalist on a certain level. <laughs> You're looking at the whole picture. Yeah. Well, that's terrible. <laughs> well, yeah. So I'm more like, yeah, I'm more like, oh my God, I love you herb, but we right. really need to focus on food with you. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. And that's one of the great things about wild foods too, is that they're oftentimes a lot more nutritionally dense mm-hmm. than, than like, you know, iceberg lettuce or even spinach, Yeah, you know, getting that uh, lamb's quarters mm-hmm. out of the disturbed totally. soil. <laughs> totally. The, the other caveat though, as an herbalist too, which is also distressing is the level of chemical, chemical, uh, the burden that the plant kingdom has on us, mm. which like the oxalate content of something yeah. like water, which I really love, can be a problem for some people in terms of calcium absorption. Mm. So, you know, there's this, again, this really intense dance around understanding. Mm. Um, and, and the wild plants might have more oxalate content. Ah, water, yeah. You know, and, and for me, that's like a bummer because I right. love lamb's quarter and yet, right. you know, it may be too oxalate rich for me, if I'm, you know, already deficient from my veganism or whatever. So those are those Mm -hmm. questions. So the plant kingdom has phytochemicals that can really be a burden on the human body and really pushes us toward leaning on the animal kingdom sometimes with Mm -hmm. a lot of clients, that is the case. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I want to celebrate my plants. I love them. I love the taste. I want to be out there foraging, but sometimes with clients, they have such issues with plant chemicals that, you know, which is a, yeah, anyway. So that's, that's a whole other thing, but there is also on the flip side to that, that the plant chemicals may be triggering positive. So there's a a chemical in a plant that is somewhat toxic in large, large doses, but in small doses, it's actually a trigger for a healing response. So that's also a funny dance to do, to keep that in mind. And it's the hormetic effect. It's the effect where hormesis comes in. So you do something that causes the body to go off. And then you have a homeostatic response, which encourages more health from it. Hmm. That's a whole thing that I think about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. You know, it's really cool. And, and yeah. And so anyway, the plant kingdom is so nutrient dense, but it's burdened with, as humans, it's not burdened for itself but its protection is the chemicals that humans will get burdened by. That's how it keeps herbivory down, you know, cause it can't run away from us. Oh, so, right, right. So it's, it's defense mechanisms are built in chemically and oh. those can be positive too, but they're often can be negative. And yeah, who wants to say that, but sorry, that's yeah. there. Yeah. Well, that's another important thing is like knowing how to process plants also like a lot of indigenous cultures like they have very specific ways that they process the plants that they eat and so like even like 
soaking beans and rice is something that I, I knew you're supposed to do it. I was like, eh, but then after like, you know, listening to Tammy sweet talk about the compounds that are in the, the seeds, it's like, you have to, yeah, the lectins. (laughs) Yeah. You have to soak them or those will be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? Um, definitely you want to be soaking and sometimes even sprouting or sourdoughing or fermenting and still right, right. problematic. So as humans with traditional cultures behind us, and this is Dr. Price's studying too, was like, what did they do to those plant foods to make them, just like you said, more digestible, but they still may be a burden for some folks. And that's, it's not a fun story, you know, but it means yeah. maybe no, no grains and beans for you right although this other human being is perfectly great with them so you mm-hmm. know and that and their culture what for whatever reasons their gut can handle it their genetics or um you know who knows there's so many different aspects but because we do traditional prepping i always push my clients to to do that that isn't always enough right mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah. this this is bring two ancient greek sayings to my mind and the first is uh, know thyself, right? Like every everybody's different and you have to know what your own reactions are and what you can t- take and what you can't take and what you need and what you don't need. Mm-hmm. And the other is Socrates saying, you know, all I know is that I don't know anything. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> it's or true. Like I would that. also say that what you need will change yeah. throughout yeah. your life. And so- a vegan menu could be actually appropriate for someone for some period of their life. Mm. And then that becomes a very negative diet at a different stage in their life, growing, uh, being a child, growing a teenager, different needs, being pregnant, nursing, right. Um, and then old age, you know, they're all really, really different. And Mm -hmm. so that's a whole other thing. Like you're, you're not, you know, thyself, and it keeps shifting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's, it's hard to keep up with it all. Yeah, but yeah. So to to sort of wrap up um, this amazing conversation, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about you as an educator and as a teacher. Uh, you share lots of informational videos online, and um, you, either on YouTube or Instagram, and you you know take people on plant walks, and you have classes at your homestead. And I was wondering just first, how did you develop from being a student to a teacher? What did that process look like for you? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, Maybe there's some element of my being a teacher just sort of inside. I mean, I can remember like I have been a dancer all my life and did a lot of, um, you know, different dance classes, taking as a student, as a, a, again, kid, eight-year-old, nine-year-old. And I remember traveling and visiting um, someone, another girl who was 12 years old and she wanted to learn how to do ballet. (laughs) So I was like, okay, let me teach you. And like, you're just, you know, in some trailer park bathroom or something. And I can't remember the specifics, but I just was sharing with her, this is how you do a plie. This is how you move your arms. And it was like very, very natural for me to like show her and help her and like empower her to do the thing, you know? And so maybe there is just something that I, I'm compelled a bit to do. And maybe it's annoying. Maybe people are like, shut up. or we don't want to hear you. You know, <laughs> I want to teach you something um, or I know, or like something like that. But um, so 
I think there might be something inside of me that wants to be helpful Mm -hmm. and thinks that I know. Mm-hmm. And so like, also, this is another funny story. I know I'm, I'm going on tangents, but no, my mom it. would say, my mom would say like when we were in Mexico and Spanish was our, my first language, but I'd be like one years old. Supposedly I was speaking at like some crazy young age, like before a year walking and talking at like some crazy young, young age. But what I would do is I would translate for the babies who are my age to hurt their parents to explain. Oh, wow. Like, so wow. They would be saying something and I would be saying to the parent, they, they're saying this or that. And like, That's who knows? Amazing. But my mom would tell me the story and I'm like, that feels something familiar. Like, I think that I understand maybe more than, or I'm trying to be helpful or I don't know. But so that's a kind of an educator or a translator. I never thought of myself as an educator. I thought of myself as somebody who would help someone understand something. Like, Mm. let me help you understand it. Not like I'm going to teach you. So Mm. I never identified as a teacher, Mm. but it was more like, let me show you, let me help you learn this. And the transition happened organically because I began to teach as a plant person, I began to teach at the herb conferences at Green Nations as a very young herbalist. I would do plant walks and teach people and um, just, you know, doing it for three plus decades, you just like develop the ability to teach if you want to, you know, it's yeah. the passion to share. And it, it didn't like, I didn't go to a training. Rosemary used to do these teacher trainings that uh-huh. I never did. And I was like, I probably should do that. You know, like I need some training. Cause I don't, I know what I'm doing because I'm driven by what I sense needs to happen, but I don't have any proper teacher training. Hmm. And um, I think the doing, you know, on the job training is basically what happened. I'll, I'll add that there's also a training that occurred that isn't teacher related, but that in high school, I went to the High School of Performing Arts in New York City, and we learn how to speak clearly and we learn mm. how to speak with intention being, mm. you know, as a theater major, we have communication training, but it isn't like to be a teacher. It's to communicate though, as an actress or, you know, whatever a performer. And unknowingly, I think that has something to do with having presence. You're trained to have a certain kind of presence and a presentation. Um, I wouldn't put those dots together early on, but you asked that question and yeah. it's come up now over the years of like, because with this online stuff that's happening now with being filmed and that being super creepy, like I didn't want to do that. <laughs> you know? And huh. Sam, my son, who's a filmmaker mm-hmm. was like, mom, we're going to collaborate. We're going to do this. And I was that's like, cool. yeah, right. You want to <laughs> do it. I'll do it, but I don't want to do it. Um, and so we, we did it. And then it's coming up now where it's like, okay, there's something about that being on film, which now I've grown to be comfortable with mm-hmm. over, you know, two years of doing this with Sam. It's like, I'm cool now with it. You know, it's okay. There's a lot more to say about that, but mm-hmm. um, being able to articulate and communicate clearly, I think comes from, you know, voice and diction class and, you know, being able to present Mm. in that early teenage training you know it was a very intense um intense program that we went through Mm -hmm. forming our high school stuff so I think I have to give some credit to that to just being because I think a lot of people who teach can have beautiful things to share but they don't you can't hear them or they're not you know they're not giving you they're not engaging or yeah. yeah 
they're not giving you themselves. Like in a way, that's what you do as a teacher. For me anyway, it's about giving, right? And it's like mm. trying to, I mean, I have a background in choreography and visual arts, and it's about how do you communicate your message clearly? The book was another example of putting that to use. I have a message, how do I communicate with this book clearly? So it's this, it's like being an educator on all these different levels. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it evolved sort of on the job, but maybe I'm really pulling from these other strains that had been given to me. Plus maybe yeah. some intrinsic stuff of like, I know, let me show you. I think I understand what you're asking. Let me explain it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, <gasps> yeah, a combination of that, that training and just being a natural, like I've noticed on plant walks, you actually, when you'll like repeat what a student says and um, like, you'll ask a question and then the student will answer and you'll repeat that answer that they just said, like almost word for word and then expand upon it. So it's like, you're really hearing the person. And I think, you know, those, I don't know if that's something that's conscious that you do or that you learned along the way, but yeah, little, little tidbits like that, like can really make for a good teacher. Right. And I think another thing is, is that I never really owned the teacher hat. Like I just wanted to do the work. Right. I didn't want to identify as a teacher. Hmm, Yeah. I wanted to identify as a sharer or as somebody who helps to create like a better world, Hmm. to be an inspirer, to be somebody who really helps. So when I hear someone share something, I want to create community and empowerment. I don't want to be a teacher that has students and the students are less than the teacher. I want to create a world where we're all learning from each other. And yet I have a lot to tell or a lot to share. So, and I feel like I do know a lot and maybe perhaps a lot more than who's around me. And is that a negative? No, but it's how do we share it so that we are weaving it together rather than, you are going to listen to me and uh, you're like, like, so it's a hierarchical problem that I have, like, sure, yeah. and I still have a little bit, you know, it's more like, how do I empower you? How am I going to heart connect to you to gift mm-hmm. you this? How are you going to feel empowered by this rather than diminished or become less than or, or become a follower, like some kind of, that's the whole thing with the online stuff, but like, you know, so it's like, instead we're having an exchange and maybe it's back to that little kid who would hear the baby, the one-year-old saying gibberish. And I knew what they were saying. And I would go tell their mom, it was like, I was a translator or I want to connect the dots or the purposes in making something more whole and more full. Right. So it isn't like, I am so grand here. You know, I know, you know, it's more like, yes, it's about, please, all of us, what you have to say is as important as what I have to say. Like, Mm -hmm. let's all weave it together. And yet I do need to honor the fact that I have whatever decades of understanding about something Yeah, and do take up that space. And believe me, I do. (laughs) It's not like, (laughs) yeah. So it's that fine dance between all of that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you think you could give our listeners, um, you know, uh, information on how to find your courses and classes and and stuff sure well right now with pandemic it's an odd time for in-person education yeah but folks you know they can i think if they want to um sign up for my newsletter and do you will you give links or yeah, yeah. yeah we'll put okay. links in the show notes 
So then I'll, I'll give those to you. Um, so I have, I have two websites and the newsletter from inthewild.kitchen slash newsletter. That's where folks should sign up to stay in uh, communication with me. That's, I'm gonna send usually, Sam and I were committed to creating one video a week through the COVID pandemic and so on. And we've been doing that. It's like a free giveaway at YouTube or Instagram or Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so um, what that email will do is alert you, okay, we put a new free lesson out, go check it out. Or it will mm -hmm. tell you, I'm going to be doing some plant walks or I'm going to do an intensive here or the online programs have just opened. And if you want to join, you've got a week or whatever. So that's a way to keep up. There will be an online um, opening for the In the Wild Kitchen and the Foraging Fundamentals. That's a really rich online education that that will open up, but I'm not sure what the dates are for your program here, but that'll open up in the next 10 days or so for a mm -hmm. short period. Um, anyway, so getting into, getting into the email, getting onto the newsletter, uh, signing up for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they can go to botanicalartspress.com. There's an events tab there. And when things are happening, that calendar gets activated again, because things are funky right now. Mostly it's best to sign up for that newsletter. And yes, you'll be getting news from me weekly and a little hammer about a program opening, <laughs> yeah, cool. which is a little crazy, but that's how it goes right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so teaching, if folks want to learn from me, yeah. And also, as you said, the YouTube, it's free online lessons. There's a like huge amounts of learning that's free that you can do right there. The Dina Falcone YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. So I think that, you know, folks can do the Instagram foraging and feasting and Facebook foraging and feasting. Both of those platforms, I try to give inspiration and education pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. So those are good good platforms for getting, um, you know, in, in keeping, what's the word, my, the, the pulse of what I'm doing, you mm -hmm. know, staying in, right. in touch. Well, yeah. I'm feeling super inspired by you and all of the work that you are doing. So thank you so much for being on the plant cutting podcast. Mm, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes. All right, Dina. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.